Well, when was the last time that you heard a great motivational speech of some kind, an uplifting can-do talk? Uh, we live in a culture, at least from what I have observed, uh, that is open to hearing from motivational speakers who provide a positive take on humanity's ability to uh, strive and to perform, to achieve and to map out and uh, gain a positive life for oneself. It's positive on human ability, our endeavours, our achievements, and the power of the individual to truly flourish and prosper, to gain a blessed life, a prosperous life, if only you set your mind to it. As I think back over the last few decades, a few well-known names might come to mind. A lot of them tend to be U.S. because, um, yeah, they have speakers there that sort of uh, Aussie audiences will listen to as well. You know, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, Tony Robbins. Uh, I think of the self-help books, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he wrote that book. In modern times, you might have Jordan Peterson in his 12 Rules for Life, that if you just follow these rules... Life will go perhaps just not as bad for you. Now we have uh, in our modern world TED Talks that offer all kinds of talks on different subjects. Uh, one very well-known TED Talk is by Simon Sinek. Uh, that's titled, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. And he offers advice as to why some companies or people are more successful than others, motivating his audience to ask the why question. Arguing the purpose behind why is something that's critical. And if you just do that, you can then be on the road to success. Not always, but often I find these talks that I've observed carry with them a positive you-can-do-it attitude, saying in essence that you have what it takes to succeed if only you believe in yourself, pull up your socks and set your mind to whatever it is that you wish to achieve. We live in a culture where human endeavours are seen optimistically, I would say. I mean, there's certainly secular or faith-based person would acknowledge that lots of bad stuff happens in the world. But in general, from what I've seen at least, we are optimistic about humanity and our future. And, you know, why shouldn't we when we look to the future and our own abilities? When we've achieved so much, look at where humanity is compared to centuries prior. Look at all that we've achieved. Look at medicine, look at science, or pick anything else. As we've been exploring in the book of Haggai, in God's Word this January, we've seen how Haggai as well kind of delivers uh, God's own motivational talks to God's people in some sense. Today we're going to be considering Haggai's third message to God's people. Now some three and a half months on from his first message in chapter 1. The context to this third message is essentially the same as the prior two messages that we've been exploring these last few weeks if you've been here. The Jerusalem temple lay in ruins and the people needed a bit of prompting, you could say, to get on with building it. And so, in a sense, the setting is not new when we come to chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. It's still the same task that is before these people to do. But the focus of his third message 
has certainly changed and shifted. Now God's prophet Haggai gets down to the heart of the matter. He digs down deeper below the surface, you could say, and reveals the real issue at play. The core issue as to why the people lacked wholehearted devotion to God that they should have had and why they struggled to persistently persevere in their obedience to God. Likewise then for us, Haggai's words are a gift to God's church as we too are encouraged to get to the heart of the matter. And as we really consider what does it truly mean to be blessed, particularly by God, what does it mean to live a blessed life? And also in considering how successful or unsuccessful all our human endeavours really are viewed from the vantage point of God himself. What do we find then when we consider Haggai's grand motivational talk here? What do we learn from it? Well, the first thing is this. We learn just how unconventionally unmotivating and deflating his message is to the people and how he calls the people lacking and sinful through and through. And yet, paradoxically, these utterly deflating words were exactly what the people needed to hear. Haggai begins his message with a question for the priests who are tasked with carrying out the temple activities and sacrifices in Old Testament times, who were trained in the law of Moses. Now, I'll just read a few verses again, verse 11, from verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil, any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered him and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answers, answered and said, it does become unclean. Now, to many modern-day readers and listeners, particularly if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, Haggai's words here are gobbledygook, religious jargon, gibberish. But to the priests, these two questions that he had asked them were actually would have been pretty straightforward for them to answer. Like being, uh, coming to a multiple-choice question, the answers always see right. Easy. They know the answer. His question related to the ceremonial or ritual laws that the Jews in Old Testament times are under. Laws that don't apply the same way to Christians in New Testament times. We don't need to follow those rituals and ceremonial laws uh, because the temple is gone. As we saw last week, there is a greater temple here, Jesus. But nonetheless, these laws remain instructive for the church then and now in how they teach us about the true nature of sin and our need for a saviour. These ceremonial laws taught that there were three ceremonial states that objects or people could be in, whether unclean, clean or holy. Because the temple complex was symbolic for the presence of God, anything that entered the temple area 
according to Mosaic law, would need to be ritually cleansed before it could be, enter or be used within the temple by the priests. Even the priests themselves would need to go through cleansing rituals. The most basic point Haggai was bringing to mind in these questions is this. Holiness would not readily transfer to other objects easily. While, according to the law of Moses, the state of uncleanness would transfer much more easily, like a contagious disease that easily spreads, or walking through the house with your muddy boots on and just gets dirt everywhere. But then comes the crunch. Haggai applies this principle to the people, something that these ritual laws were designed to teach in the first place. Verse 14, Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. All that these people did and were doing was stained with sin because their actions sprung forth from a heart affected by and stained by sin. They were a people unclean at heart, at a heart level. This is contrary to Israel's calling. For according to God's words in Exodus 19, God said to Israel there, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Evidently, they failed at this calling. Likewise for us here today, Haggai's words teach us numeral principles and truths about the true nature of sin and how it affects us. Firstly, we learn that sin is utterly pervasive. It affects the person head to toe, through and through. Sin is not like a little blemish or defect that some cosmetic makeup or surgery can fix. This challenges head-on the modern-day belief that our culture has that people are not inherently evil in some way, but are kind of born with a choice between good or evil. The teaching of Scripture is contrary to this, teaching that all are sinful, even from birth. The human heart is so inclined toward evil that and it is our very nature. By ourselves, the sinner only will ever choose evil, even if we don't recognize the evil or see it clearly and obviously. Or obviously. Number two, secondly, all human endeavor, no matter how good or positive, is stained with sin and is therefore unworthy in God's eyes. The best of what we do is blemished in some way because our heart motivation is never totally pure and is in some way selfish. How's that for some great motivating words for you this Sunday morning? Surely Haggai scores a 0 out of 10 for motivation, perhaps a minus 10 score. As you, head, and you and I head into 2024 together and seek to serve God and to live a good life, none of what you and I will do will ever be in and of itself good enough and totally, totally pleasing in God's eyes. Now, if that doesn't knock the wind out of your sails, I don't know what will. Oh, but you don't see how much I do for God. I hear a voice cries out in the audience. I don't boast about it, but I know that by and large, I fulfill my Christian duty. 
You don't see the personal pain and suffering that I go through to serve God. The sacrifices I make, surely it must count for something. Nope. It does not earn any favor for God in God's eyes, not one little bit. If you and I are left to our own devices, we are doomed to fail before we even begin. Thirdly, sin is contagious. Just like it is easier to get a white shirt or t-shirt dirty or stained than it is to keep it clean, so sin has the habit of, of multiplying and affecting everything. Like wildfire. Just think of gossip, for example, and how destructive a few careless or ill-motivated words can do to someone and just cause multiplied strife. Or think about how a fight starts on an AFL field with one punch that quickly turns into 20 punches. These people before us in our passage were now faithfully building the temple. Offerings had been offered on the altar for some years, but all of it had the dirty fin prints of sin all over it. In themselves, they, these burnt offerings on the altar did not take away sin. Fourthly, sin brings God's curse. Verse 15, Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. We've already explored this a little bit in Haggai. We've seen how the law of Moses stated that there were covenant blessings for obedience, covenant curses for disobeying God's word. The curse of sin that began with Adam in the garden is still at play in the world today. Number five, sin makes the human heart unresponsive to God's life-giving voice. Yet, says Haggai, Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. The human soul without God is so lost that it doesn't have the power nor the desire to do what it should do, to truly listen to God's voice, to even respond positively to the gospel. The human soul is so lost that even if uh, the remedy is on the table, it's so lost that it doesn't want to pick up that EpiPen that's right in front of it and inject itself to save it from death. The antidote is right there, but it won't even reach out and grasp it. It is too shocked and overcome by the sickness of sin. So that's the first thing that we learn from our passage we first hear some pretty demotivating and deflating things from God's prophet here in Haggai. It's in this context, this ugliness of human sin and its various aspects, that Haggai next provides much-needed help and hope. Some positive motivation, you could say. 
And so that's the second thing that we're going to explore this morning, where Haggai declares God's undeserved blessing upon God's people. Verse 18 to 19, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. God draws a line in the sand here. On this particular date, from this time forward, God was going to bless his people. Things were going to look better for them. Was there something special about this particular date? Well, a careful reader will note that so far in the book of Haggai, specific dates are important to the book and shed light on what we learned there. And actually, uh, it means these specific dates can be traced by historians and syncretized with old calendars, with modern day calendars and dates, measures. We can actually backtrack and work out exactly when these dates uh, would have occurred within an accuracy of one day. I've got a table there, I think. um, I don't normally show this kind of detail, but I think it's helpful here. I think it's kind of cool. It's got some verse. um, It's probably maybe a little bit hard to see there. uh, But it's got references from Haggai as well as Zechariah. And on the very right side, uh, you can see the equivalent date of in history of when these messages would have first been said uh, within apparently one day or something. Uh, If nothing else, you know, this is a helpful reminder for us just to recognize that our Old Testaments are historical documents. They're ones that can be trusted. And Jesus himself viewed them as trustworthy. Haggai's first two messages occurred on dates during annual festive days. Uh, Thanks, we can take that off now. But what about this third date here? Is there anything special about this date? Well, unlike the first two dates, this date doesn't occur on any special festive day. Rather, it was special, according to our passage, because it apparently marked a key turning point in the laying of the foundation of the temple. But how did this marry up with Ezra chapter 3? For in Ezra, Ezra chapter 3, it also speaks of work beginning on the temple foundation when the exiles first returned to the land some 15 or 17 years prior. Now, there are many ways you could view this and many plausible possibilities. It's likely seen simply as either them just beginning again the foundation work or completing what wasn't first finished back when that work was frustrated, as you read in the book of Ezra. Either way, it's a turning point when work was being done and this is the day that God brought his message to his people. Furthermore, Haggai asked the question, is there seed yet in the barn? Is Haggai expecting, expecting a yes or a no to that? Again, there's many thoughts and plausible options. It seems most likely that the answer should be no, because the seed for the next year's crop was not in the barn, but rather had been sown in the field. It was too early to know whether this crop would be successful for the next year. Would their fortunes change? 
Well, Haggai then essentially is prophesying, predicting that these crops would be good in the future. They've had a bad crop, but they now would have a time of physical blessing in the near future. What is the teaching then for us here today? What is the positive motivation Haggai gives to God's people during any time and age? Well, Haggai teaches us the following about God's blessing and attitude towards his people. Number one, God's blessing is God's undeserved free gift towards his people. God's attitude towards his people is that of grace. The people of Haggai's day deserved God's curse, but instead received his blessing. Likewise, the same is true for every person who declares Christ as their Lord and King. In the US, a story uh, is in the news recently of an 18-year-old who's been sentenced to life in prison uh, for carjacking uh, in 2022, he, having kicked out a 73-year-old grandmother out of the car and attempting to drive off. Uh, it was a shocking story because, unfortunately, this lady was caught in the wheel of the car and was dragged along the, the road for some distance. And she actually sustained such terrible uh, damage, she died from what she experienced. A family member has recorded a saying of this young 18-year-old who committed this crime. There is no remorse. He got what he deserved. He did it. Uh, he's a uh, little punk, and he deserved uh, to go where he is going. He is a demon, and God saw that demon that day uh, and yeah, essentially gave him what he deserved. Now, that's a shocking story, and I didn't give all the details in there. Um, but it's applicable because imagine if that 18-year-old boy tomorrow is let go free from prison. What would be your gut feel towards that? You think that's not really fair. He needs to be punished and deserves something for what he's done. What so it is, with God's, when we consider God's attitude towards Christians, towards his people who have been saved by grace and sinners who deserve God's judgment and yet receive his favor. Number two, God's blessing means that we are then accepted by God. Despite the impurity of our work in all that we do, God somehow accepted these people and the work of their hands one needs to read on in the story of Scripture to see how this truly happens. And that's something I'll consider in a moment. Number three, God's blessing is wholesome and concerns the whole person. The word blessing here is different to that found in, say, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. The word for blessed in Matthew 5 relates primarily to a person's status before God as being someone who is has received the smile of God. The word for blessing in Haggai 2 relates more, you could say, to the outworking of God's attitude towards his people. It's a wholesome uh, word that encapsulates the experience of God's blessing too. 
both body and soul. Here in our text, the people received the promise of agricultural success along with a renewed relational communion with God. In a world full of sin, our experience of God's blessing continues to be mixed, somewhat now and somewhat not yet. And number four, God's blessing is ultimately fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. The book of Haggai, much like the rest of the Old Testament, is like reading a novel or watching a movie that leaves you hanging, right at the climax of the story or the plot line. Uh, this week in the Australian Open, uh, tennis player, Aussie player Kokonakis won a four-hour-long five-setter against his opponent. Imagine if you were watching that game, and just before the winning hit, the players just both just walk off the field and leave the, the court without uh, someone winning. Likewise, that's what it's like for us as we head into the New Testament and read the whole story of Scripture. For it is not until Jesus Christ and his work on the cross that we find Scripture coming to its fulfilling and satisfying finish. And, we, and how we see God's greater and more complete blessing coming to God's people. The cross of Christ is God's greater day when he truly drew a line in the sand. For on the cross where Jesus died, the Son of God, uh, we saw God's justice satisfied. The cross then shows us that God can't simply ignore sin. Some people imagine that God should just forgive everyone because he's a God of love, right? Why would a God of love send anyone to hell? But God is a God of holy love, love defined by God's terms, not cultural human terms, love that rejects all evil, love that completely marries with his good and just law and perfection, love that requires the cross where full payment for sin is made. The cross of Christ also shows the mercy and compassion of God for having died in the place of sinners uh, when Jesus did that for us, God is able to extend mercy and grace to all who repent of their sins and turn in faith to Christ. All believers are in Christ, justified by his grace. In Romans 3, Paul opens this up for us in a glorious way. I'll read a few verses there from verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, there's a lot in those verses. I can't cover all of that, nor should I try right now. 
But one thing that he does say is that God was always, in New Testament times, looking ahead to that time of the cross. That is how Old Testament believers could be saved, looking ahead for that future hope. God passed over former sins, waiting for them to be paid on the cross. Now, you and I as Christians can look back and know the day that God's blessing and grace has come. The cross of Christ gives believers great motivation to live the Christian life. Even though our good deeds are stained, all is washed and made acceptable by the blood of Jesus in God's eyes. The Christian can head into 2024 then with great confidence, knowing that all we do for God is made through Christ pleasing to God, all because of Jesus Christ who makes us acceptable in God's eyes. How do you view the year ahead and your service of the Lord this year? Do you kind of feel like you never meet up to the mark, never do enough? Well, God says that in Christ you're already enough and that in the freedom that we have in Christ, we can actually serve him with joyful hearts. Yes, we will never get things right. We make mistakes at times, but we can serve God knowing that Jesus has saved us and poured out his grace upon us. That gives us great assurance, great motivation, great freedom to walk the Christian life. I hope you know that freedom today, Christian. Viewing every day as a gift from God. And that he has a future in store for you as well. What about you this morning, churchgoer? Do you know this amazing acceptance of God for yourself? Do you know the love of the Savior? Or are you deep down still trusting in your own goodness? In your own good deeds, do you resist his grace, thinking that you are good enough for God in yourself and that somehow you can prove yourself good enough for him? Or have you given up on your own good deeds? Have you abandoned trying to be your own self-saviour? If you are here today yet to place your trust in Christ, yet to experience the freedom and sweetness of God's mercy found in Christ and Christ alone. Come to him and he will graciously take away the great burden of your sin that weighs down on you and place them on his shoulders and say to you, come and follow me. Will you come to him? Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we've considered your word this morning, uh, according to your prophet Haggai, we are challenged to consider how we view our own good deeds. Father, your word is very plain to us. All are sinners and sinful. All fall short of the glory of God. May we not be found being people who rely deep down on our own goodness but solely rely on the grace of God found in Jesus Christ alone. Father, I pray that as we go to serve you this year and we face the struggles of 2024, the ups and downs, the joys, the highs and the lows, Father, may we always be remembered that no matter what, we are your children who are totally accepted in your eyes, covered by the blood of Jesus 
and justified by his grace. Father, we thank you for the amazing freedom that we have in the gospel. And may that spur each one of us on this year to live wholesome lives that give glory to you and that are increasingly holy and spirit-driven lives, Lord, that bring glory to you and that uh, do show the praises of God to others in our lives, that others would see that we have this spiritual quietness of soul and this love from you that cannot be found in the world. Father, may we leave this place declaring the excellencies of your praises, knowing that you are a good God who is deserving of all worship, praise, and honor. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.